0: Welcome back to Foster Adopt Minnesota's Let's Talk, a podcast that brings you valuable resources for prospective and current adoptive and foster families as well as professionals. My name is Sunny, and I'm an education coordinator at Foster Adopt Minnesota.
1: And I'm Chris. I'm also an education coordinator here at Foster Adopt Minnesota. Sunny, we are close to wrapping up our Spring Summit Presenter Series. It's been a lot of fun getting to know these professionals on a more personal level.
0: So who do we have with us today? Today we have with us Dr. Ira Chasnov, the President of NTI Upstream and a Professor of Clinical Pediatrics at the University of Illinois College of Medicine in Chicago. Dr. Chasnov is an award-winning author, researcher, and lecturer. He is one of the nation's leading researchers in the field of child development and an expert on the effects of environmental factors on the developmental trajectory of children and adolescents. Dr. Chasnoff has received a multitude of awards and recognition from professional organizations from all over the globe. If I were to list all of his awards here, we would run out of time. Dr. Chasnov will be presenting a prenatal substance exposure webinar for Minnesota at 9 a.m. Central Time on April
1: 19th. Sunny, I agree. What he has done and accomplished in this field is pretty amazing. Listeners can check out his full bio on our website under the education tab. Welcome, Dr. Chasnoff. We are eager to pick your brain and hear your thoughts on why behavior belongs in the brain. So let's get started. So you've been so involved in the research and education of biological and environmental factors and their impacts on children and their families. When did you start focusing on the needs of children and adolescents at risk from prenatal and postnatal trauma?
2: Uh, Actually, it started back in 1976. I was um, running a a clinic, a developmental clinic for children coming out of the neonatal ICU. So these were all babies, prematurity, low birth weight, you know, the usual uh, risk factors and found a population of children that were different from all the others. And when I looked further at their histories, They had all been born to mothers who had had no prenatal care, had come into the hospital, delivered and gone home, and left the babies in the hospital uh, going through what we now know as neonatal abstinence syndrome. So their mothers had used uh, opiates. So this was back in the days of heroin. So we actually opened one of the first drug treatment programs for pregnant women in the country. Um, As a pediatrician, I knew I couldn't do much for the babies without at least addressing the issues during pregnancy. So I got two friends, and they uh, did the prenatal obstetric care, uh, a nurse who was a friend, and we had no funding. Uh, This was all purely a volunteer free clinic that we opened, uh, and um, it just grew from there.
0: Wow, that's that's really interesting. Um, how did you know in that moment or during that time in the '70s that this would become part of your expertise?
2: Oh, I had no idea. Oh. I was, I was, <laughs> you know, I was I was a pediatrician in general pediatric practice, so that, that's how I paid the bills. Uh, but through 1990, uh, I continued in my private practice uh, and with my volunteer work. And then it got to be to the point where I basically had two full-time jobs. And so I had to choose. And of course, I chose the one that had no funding, no payment. So uh, <laughs> I have a course. very, <laughs> a very understanding wife. And uh, so uh, actually moved out of private practice completely. In 1990, and opened uh, a not-for-profit organization to focus on this work, and began writing grant proposals. And got was lucky enough to receive uh, quite a bit of federal funding, and that's how we came up with what we did.
0: Wow!
1: So, what was the first committee that you served on, and under which U.S. administration?
2: Oh, that was back under Reagan. Uh, for those of you that are old enough to remember the war on drugs, <laughs> um, <laughs> I <doesn't> remember. Really... <laughs> oh. Okay, I well. remember those
1: commercials, those brain on drugs. You know the egg and, <laughs> the Reagan. <laughs> and Nancy
0: Reagan. <laughs> That's and what and everybody that. remembers.
2: <laughs> um, the um, yeah, so one of the one of the early aspects of it was something called the uh, National Drug. National Center for Drug Control Policy, or office, ONDCP, Office of National Drug Control Policy, under Reagan. And the fellow that was appointed the first, quote, drug czar was a fellow named uh, Ian Donald McDonald. And um, he asked me to join the staff. Uh, we lived in Chicago, so I never joined the staff there, but worked as a consultant and worked especially with Ian as he was putting it all together Uh, and so got to know the federal aspect so that was the first that I started working with the feds okay and of course about them you don't say the feds that's (laughs) that's taken as an insult
0: (laughs) oh okay well good to know it's like not to call your fraternity a frat right yeah (laughs) (laughs) Um, so, how has the focus changed since? Oh, I had another Reagan follow up. Though. Oh, yes. Yeah. So sorry,
1: I'm going to interrupt because yeah. I am curious about like, um, you know, working for our U.S. administrations. Like, how do the political tides change, and shift your your committees and your commissions' focus?
2: Well, I don't think politics and politicians had much to do with it. We operated fairly independently. Um, the the Bush administration, Bush senior, had very little focus on substance use misuse issues. And so it really all of that really flew under the under the radar. Um, during the Clinton years, um, they, that's when a real focus on pregnancy, women's issues as separate from men, uh, and the implications for the children. uh, That's when the emphasis really started. And it was because of cocaine. So the focus was on cocaine. And the, the federal government has a bad habit of looking at one drug at a time. And so earlier, it was heroin and opiates, then it became cocaine. And then, you know, the next evolution was methamphetamine and now back to opiates with methamphetamine still in the background when in, the rea- in reality the most common form of substance use and misuse is public drug use and so you can't just look at alcohol you can't just look at um, methamphetamine you can't even just look at tobacco especially when these substances affect pregnancy. So you have to look at it from a much more holistic uh, perspective. So I think that's one thing. The other issue that's really evolved over the years is the importance of addressing alcohol use during pregnancy because that by far up until recently has been the most commonly misused substance during pregnancy. But in the last few years, marijuana is taking over. So it depends on what state you go to. Uh, but in some states we're finding marijuana use during pregnancy is even more common than alcohol.
1: That's that's really interesting. Yeah, that's definitely a shift. And I don't mean to get political. I just, it's not every day that we have someone that's served on US administration. No,
2: it's, it's, uh, it's um, you know, a lot of it is political. You know, you could ask the question, Why isn't there much information about men's use of substances and how that affects child outcome? And until recently, there wasn't because there is this kind of built-in bias that it's all the mother's fault. What the most recent studies are showing though is we're getting more and more into understanding the concept of epigenetics. And studies are showing that certainly marijuana use by the male, alcohol use by the male certainly has epigenetic implications.
0: Wow. What about tobacco use?
2: Well, I don't know of any particular specific studies. You know, this is all fairly new. Do you think your listeners will understand what we mean by epigenetics?
1: I think you should just just touch on that a little bit so people can get a a better understanding and maybe do their own research too, but you can start them
2: in the right direction. Well, this is one of my favorite topics. So if I go on too long, tell me. (laughs) Epigenetics are basically non-biological factors that change the genetic content of a cell. And what's important to understand is that it doesn't change the structure of the DNA in that cell, it changes the function. So the best way to think about it is, think of a light bulb with a dimmer switch. And as you turn the dimmer switch down, the light becomes dimmer. And that's what epigenetics does. Uh, I can give you an example. Um, There's a a young African-American man, a young man who, well, he's not so young anymore, but uh, I knew him as a student. Uh, he's he went to medical school, went to did a pediatric residency, and then did a um, fellowship in neonatology. So he is a fine neonatologist. And all through his training and education, he had been taught that African American women have higher rates of low birth weight babies, and the reason is um, poverty and poor access to prenatal care. And that's it's in all the books and, you know, all that was held to be true. Well, he got into practice. He's working at a large uh, urban uh, university hospital as a neonatologist. And he look, looked around and he saw that there were a lot of African-American women coming in to the university to deliver. Uh, they certainly were not impoverished. Uh, they were middle class, upper middle class. Uh, they had had good prenatal care, but they still had higher rates of low birth weight babies. And so he said, what's going on? And so he did a study. Uh, it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Oh, I'd say at least, oh, probably at least 10 years ago now. Uh, but And it's this massive study, and I won't go through all of it, but here's what he found. The reason African-American women today have higher rates of low birth weight baby, babies is not just because of poverty, poor access to care. The most important factor appears to be the trauma that pregnant African-American women went through three to 400 years ago through slavery because it's known now, and that produced epigenetic changes that have a significant impact on birth weight in African-American babies now. Um, So it's much more complex than any kind of simplistic thinking will allow. And um, that's epigenetics. That's it in a nutshell.
0: Is that the same thing that happens to the Holocaust survivors, the the generations that come after them?
2: Well, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, It kind of gets into another area that's trauma. And what the studies are showing now is that a pregnant woman in the first 12 weeks of gestation, that's the embryologic period, during the first 12 weeks, if she, if she has significant emotional stress, she produces methyl, the methyl group. And if you've studied trauma, you know that in trauma, you get methylation of cells. Well, what happens in the first 12 weeks, if a woman undergoes significant emotional stress, the stem cells, which are the earliest cells in the embryo, can become methylated. And when that methyl group attaches to the stem cells, that's called methylation, it produces epigenetic changes in the stem cells. So early on in pregnancy, during that first 12 weeks, significant stress can cause epigenetic changes related to trauma. So what that tells us as clinicians, We need to identify, this goes way beyond substance use issues. We need to identify women at risk due to stress, domestic violence, uh, mental health problems, because all those kinds of things can produce epigenetic changes that affect generations to come. So it's not just the immediate effect on whatever baby she's carrying at the time. This is for generations to come.
1: And how many generations do you think, I mean, you talked about slavery and Holocaust, and so that's so many generations, so many years, like, uh, do you see Once,
2: Once you have changes in the genetic material, that genetic material gets passed on to future generations. You can't stop it. Um, Now, the difficulty with studying epigenetics is it takes several generations to understand the outcomes, the effects. So I'll tell you something even scarier, I think from a practical viewpoint, extensive animal studies and now some human studies are showing the epigenetic effects of marijuana and you get changes. So in animal studies, you get for several generations, uh, you get double-headed sperm. So it actually changes the morphology of the sperm of the male. Now, the good news is, although women are born with all their eggs, you know, forever, men produce new sperm every 140 days or so. So, if you have a man who's using marijuana, and this couple now is planning a pregnancy, which of course doesn't happen that often, but you tell that man, I want you to stop smoking marijuana, tobacco, anything else you're using, you've got to stop for at least you know, 140 days, three to four months before you conceive. So, but is that information going getting out there? Uh, are states that are um, you know, legalizing marijuana, are they actually um, telling the public about the implication? Okay, you can have marijuana, can have as much as you want, but here are the risks here are the health factors. Eh, that information, most doctors don't even know this. So how is the public supposed to? I want big billboards up all around that <laughs> say, if you're having sex, don't drink. Right. If you're having sex, don't smoke pot. So. Well, our go. podcast
1: is pretty <laughs> popular. So we're, we're kind of famous, but maybe this will hit the hit the
2: airwaves. And-
1: okay. Okay. Make your dreams come true. Maybe maybe someone
2: will put that billboard up for me.
0: (laughs) Right. It's the Gen Z billboard. (laughs) So, Dr. Chasnoff, what has been the biggest shift with research and findings with the prenatal substance exposure since you started?
2: Yeah. Yeah. We've been talking about epigenetics and the long term over generations. We have a more immediate issue, which is. What are the effects on children that we're seeing now um, You know, when it comes to prenatal substance exposure? Uh, what has changed the most over the last several years? Uh, I think that from a research and a clinical perspective, we're understanding that simply measuring global cognitive development, such as development in, in early childhood, the IQ in later childhood, I.Q is not a good marker for measuring impact of prenatal substance exposure. You have to go much further. And um, one, one really important aspect of that is that when I lecture and when I train physicians and talk to families, um, I talk, you know, it, it comes down to, how do we understand this child? the kinds of things that these various substances do, and you can name any substance, they all have the potential for changing the structure and function of the developing fetal brain. So how do you look at that long-term? You have to assess the child across three domains of functioning, neurocognitive, self-regulation, and uh, adaptive functioning. So I tell doctors, if you refer a child to a psychologist for an evaluation, you have to say, dear doctor psychologist, go beyond global cognitive functioning. And I want an evaluation across these three domains of functioning. Adoptive, foster, biologic parents, when you take your child in for an evaluation you have to be you have to be an advocate for the child and say i don't want just an iq and a memory test or an achievement test that a school might do i want to know how my child is functioning across these three domains of functioning and obviously the next question is going to be can you explain those three domains of functioning So do you want me to go ahead and do that? Yes. Okay. (laughs) Um, Neurocognitive. It does include global cognitive functioning, such as IQ. That is important. But listen up. The great majority of alcohol and drug-exposed children have perfectly normal IQs. They may range down into the low normal, but the great percentage have a normal IQ. And that's defined as an IQ above 70. Uh, The only only substance that actually causes an intellectual disability is alcohol. And in fact, alcohol use during pregnancy is the most common preventable cause of intellectual disabilities in the United States and the world. But it's still relatively few children. So IQ is not a good measure, you want to include it, but you want to look further. And we published a study, we asked this question, okay, what are the most common neurodevelopmental problems that the children with alcohol and drug exposure have? By far the most common problem is executive functioning, the ability to plan and complete a task to understand cause and consequence, to understand uh, sequencing, that's all high level executive functioning. And that by far across all levels of alcohol use, all drug prenatal drug exposures, executive functioning is the most common. And so you want to be sure and evaluate executive functioning. Under neurocognitive, the third area, well, the third area, learning disabilities, everybody's pretty familiar with that, but uh, the other key area is memory. If I ask you your telephone number, you could pull it out of your brain and you could tell me your telephone number without any problem. But if I ask you your telephone number backwards, you would have trouble with that you would have to pull your telephone number out of long-term memory, hold it in your brain, and then you'd be able to tell me your telephone number backwards. That's called working memory. And especially children with alcohol exposure have significant difficulties with working memory. And then the other issue is, once you accomplish that, if I ask you right away, again, tell me your telephone number backwards, you would have to go through the same thing because you knew knowing your telephone number backwards was not important Uh, and you threw it away. And this is characteristic of alcohol-exposed children. Notice I didn't say drug, I said alcohol-exposed children. They have good short-term memory, but they have trouble moving information from short-term to long-term memory. And the adoptive parents out there, the foster and biological parents will recognize this. Let's take a scenario. Uh, Johnny's in third grade, learning his multiplication tables. Teacher sends a note home to the parents. Dear parents, um, we're doing multiplication tables and Johnny's having trouble with his threes. Can you please help him? So that night after dinner, these very diligent, caring parents sit down with Johnny and they go through the threes and by golly he's got it he's repeating it back throwing it back to them yeah 3 times 2 is 6 you know no problem he goes to school the next day comes home that evening with another note from the teacher dear parents you are bad parents you didn't teach johnny his multiplication tables because uh i refer in one of my books I have a whole chapter that I call Swiss cheese memory. And that's exactly that's exactly the issue with children with prenatal alcohol exposure. They can know something one moment and it's gone the next moment. So that's all neurocognitive functioning. Do you want do you have any questions about that before I go on to the to the others? No, I don't, I don't think so. I, I have
1: a question about this, another shift, but um, you
2: continue on. <laughs> All right. Well, let's finish this one and then we'll. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, the second area is called, the area is called self-regulation. The ability to regulate your behavior, your emotions, to pay attention, to focus, and what happens to those kids? What do they get diagnosed with? ADHD. <laughs> ADHD of course they get labeled as ADHD. And in fact, in another study we published, in our studies, 74% of children with prenatal alcohol and drug exposure do meet criteria for ADHD. But because of the structural and functional damage of of the fetal brain, as the kids get older, they do have high rates of ADHD, But it's a different kind of ADHD and it requires a different approach to treatment. One of the articles your families that are listening to this might be interested in uh, is uh, a study we did on uh, misdiagnosis. So we started with 3000 children did random sampling, you know, all that kind of stuff. But here's what it all came down to in the study. It was published in Pediatrics about three or four years ago. In this study, we showed that among alcohol, and most of them are alcohol, polydrug exposed children, 85.6% are misdiagnosed. Wow. 85.6%, which then if you look further, the great majority of them that were on medications didn't need medication. We took them off. But so many of our children, especially those coming out of the child welfare system, and to foster adoptive homes, so many of the children are on all sorts of medications that, you know, are completely inappropriate. Wow. The four, <laughs> yeah, I see <laughs> I stunned you into silence. Yes. Uh, <laughs> The third area is called adaptive functioning. And adaptive functioning is especially important because adaptive functioning is where children with with alcohol exposure get into a lot of trouble. It is how we differentiate fetal alcohol spectrum disorders from autism is looking at adaptive functioning. Uh, Adaptive functioning is the ability to take what you know and apply it to daily living tasks. Telling time, remembering how to set a table, following bus schedules, it's those day-to-day living skills. And I find over the long-term, it's the area that is the greatest impediment to young people moving into independent living if they have FASDs. Prenatal drug-exposed children, autism, any other developmental disability you can name, if you measure their adaptive quotient, the AQ, and the IQ, they're always going to be in the same range, pretty much. Only with with fetal alcohol spectrum disorders across the spectrum do you get a significant uh, difference between IQ and AQ. Uh, in one of our films, um, it's a documentary film about uh, 16 to 22-year-olds, uh, and it follows them in their daily living. Uh, one of the young ladies that we introduced that kind of stars in the film, uh, at the time of the film, is 19, has an IQ of 125, but cannot tell time. If you yeah. say... If you say, I mean, she can't. Uh, she tried living on her own. She's in college. She's very bright. And in talking to her, you know, it's uh, she. She's very verbal. I mean, you would just. She's beautiful. No, no, no face facial changes. You know, uh, beautiful young lady. But uh, adaptively, she couldn't live on her own. She's back living. She's 22, 23 now. Just a lovely young lady, very bright, but adaptive functioning is very low. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so that's why it, there are other issues around adaptive functioning. Communication, uh, part of adaptive functioning, is reading nonverbal cues, facial expression, body language, understanding sarcasm. sarcasm. So, it's really the adaptive functioning that gets so many of our kids in trouble on on online social media. I get called into cases all the time where there has been inappropriate sexual activity online social media. And I'm asked to, you know, the courts want to charge somebody. And I'm asked to review the case, you know, And honest to goodness, many times, I can't tell if the young person with FASDs is the perpetrator or the victim. So, um, which prompted me, one of my recent books is called FASD and the Online World. And it's all about, about how social media is structured to trap young people into doing and saying all sorts of things they should not be doing and saying. Uh, and it has a whole section on how do you protect the child? You, I have parents that say, oh, I'm just not going to let them have social media. I'm not going to let them have <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, good luck with that, especially when they go to school and their assignment is something they have to use the internet. for. Right. So we have to teach our young people, especially those with poor judgment, poor adaptive functioning, poor self-regulation, Impulsivity, you know, I'm describing a young person with FASDs, uh, we have to teach them how to manage themselves online. It can be done, not easy, but it can be done.
1: Yeah, I think oh, that's well, a I very like that yeah. It's a very common question, like yeah. we always get asked about, you know, what kind of
2: trainings are out there, what resources are out there to yeah. To it's protect really it's, them. the FASD in the online world. I don't know if you can even call it a book. It's like 32 pages. It's $12 or something ridiculous, you know. Um, people should look at that. They can find it yeah. on our website.
0: Perfect. So and what is seems- your website?
2: Oh, the website is mm-hmm. NTI, as in National Training Institute, NTI upstream.com. There's all sorts of books and materials, especially um, our particular expert expertise is in children with prenatal substance exposure and trauma who have been or are, are currently in the child welfare system, So, which is a lot of your families.
1: Right. So it seems when you started in your profession, you maybe were started treating people and now you're actually trying to prevent more preventative healthcare or maybe getting to the problem of with people. Do you know what I mean?
2: Yeah, actually the, our earliest research was, you know, what is, (laughs) what are the effects of drugs, alcohol? Uh, When we published our article, it was in nineteen. in the New England Journal of Medicine. It was the first article to describe, for instance, the impact of cocaine on pregnancy outcome. All the psychiatry books at that time said, cocaine is safe to use during pregnancy. So-
1: (laughs) Just like those sips of wine you can have every (laughs) day. Yeah,
2: yeah. So, uh, So our earliest work was just identifying what are the effects you know, we opened our program officially in 1976. Fetal alcohol syndrome had only just been uh, described by Ken Jones and David Smith out in Seattle, Washington, uh, in 1972. So this was a whole new area of research in clinical care. And i remember my residency i did my i finished medical school 50 years ago this year Um, we had no idea these kids coming in nobody had any idea what was going on with them Um, it moved from how you know identification to formalizing diagnostic systems then to assessment how do you really assess an individual with prenatal substance exposure, and now the focus over the last few years has been treatment. So we published uh, one of only four recognized, um, you know, federally recognized evidence-based treatment programs for young people with FASDs. So there are now four um, different treatment programs that are available. Um, And as part of all this, at the meantime, uh, about 20, well, in 1998, I began working with communities and states in developing systems. How do you actually develop a system going from prevention, pre-pregnancy, to pregnancy, to the neonatal period, and all the way through? So prevention, early intervention. And so most of my work now is... um, Systems. How, how do you put this all together? How do you pay for it? What training is needed? Who needs what, etc. So it's very exciting. It's uh, that's what kind of keeps me going. I love that.
1: That is great. So we. It's been so great to just talk about the other side. You know, like your history and everything. And we can dig in a little bit now about the topic that you'll be presenting on in April. Behavior belongs in the brain. Mm -hmm. the child with prenatal substance exposure. So why did you think parents professionals would benefit from this presentation? Like, why did you choose this?
2: Yeah, uh, because I want to help families move away from blame. So often, and this especially is with foster and adoptive families. They come in, the clinical situation we do it their child has been kicked out of school you know all it's been on 15 different i'm exaggerating four different <laughs> drugs you know medications and everybody is telling the parents it's their fault because they spoiled the child how many you know i had one woman i'll never forget she came in with her baby six months old had been going to her pediatrician saying, I'm worried there's something not right about my baby. And the pediatrician literally said, now, little mother, you're an adoptive mother. If you were a real mother, you wouldn't be so anxious. Oh. And so she, this baby was getting worse and worse. And finally, at six months, uh, a friend said, why don't you go see those doctors that specialize in you know, adopted children, which is kind of one of the ways we're known on the street. And so I saw this family, uh, She, the baby, it was a terrible situation. Uh, at six months of age, the baby was functioning developmentally at about six weeks. But we told the family the diagnosis, and this happens with so many families, I've lost count. I tell them, here's the diagnosis, I explain the brain effects that have produced this from the alcohol exposure or whatever and their response is mother and father always just start crying and their first response is everybody told us it was our fault so the first thing I hope to do is help families understand it's not quote their fault that they have a child who has been injured prenatally and that's the basis of the behaviors. Now, what that does, as I explain, as I show what the changes in the brain are produced by any of these substances, and I'm gonna be showing MRIs and X-rays of brains and everything, but once parents see that and understand it, they can move away from blaming the child. The child's behavior is not willful. The child's behavior is based on changes in the brain function and structure. So that's the second reason to move the parents, others, you know, Uncle Ed and at the family reunions, you know, everybody pointing at this kid, that's a bad kid, you know, but to help the family understand the brain basis of the behavior. And then finally, what that does, if we understand the brain basis, we then can develop the appropriate approach to treatment. Um, There are some medications that really do help these children, but so often, I'll give you an example, Uh, a little girl named Susie, uh, her mother was a known misuser of alcohol, was adopted right at birth The adoptive family, thank goodness, knew that she'd been alcohol exposed. So I started seeing Susie when she was about two weeks old. She's now would be in her late twenties, early thirties. I have an occasional interaction with her still, but um, so I would I followed we followed this family long term when she was nine years old. Susie was nine years old. Her Her mother brought her in uh, for an evaluation, threw her hands up in the air and said, I can't do this anymore. We're giving her back to DCFS. It was a disrupted adoption. I said, whoa, what's going on? She said, well, you know, we love her. She's our daughter, but I just can't do this anymore. Her pediatrician says she has ADHD and he put her on Ritalin and she just got worse. Now, how many of your families have been through that? Right. So I said, well, tell me what's going on. So she said, well, just a few weeks ago, we were out in the front yard, cleaning up the yard for spring. And all of a sudden Susie jumped up and she ran for the street. And mom yelled, Susie, stop, there's a truck coming. And Susie stopped, looked at the truck, looked at her mother and said, I see it, and ran out into the street. The truck slammed on his brakes, barely missed her. Mother went out and grabbed her, it was chaos. The mother said, I can't do this anymore. So I turned to Susie. I said, Susie, you're nine years old. Didn't you see the truck coming? And she looked at me and she said, Oh, I saw the truck coming. I just wouldn't, I just didn't think it would get there the same time I would. Hmm. Does she have ADHD? Absolutely. But ADHD, classic ADHD, is all about deficits in dopamine in the prefrontal cortex. So doctors treat genetic ADHD with Ritalin. Ritalin's an amphetamine. What do amphetamines do? They release what dopamine is there. So that's, that's in the prefrontal, the very front part of the brain. But Susie was exposed to alcohol. She has fairly normal dopamine functioning. So when the doctor put her on Ritalin, it just flooded her system with dopamine and she became so hyper nobody could manage her. The real problem is back in the substructure, the middle part of the brain. And I know the people on the podcast can't see my hands pointing to (laughs) it, but uh, use your imagination. But inside (laughs) the brain, right in the midline, buried beneath the outer shell of the brain, uh, it's called the limbic system. And the limbic system is the connecting point, the transporting point for connecting information to the prefrontal cortex. So dopamine can fire off and tell you how to respond. Susie's problems were in the limbic system, not the prefrontal cortex. Now that's a little hard for those of you just listening to this. That's a a little hard to understand. And so this is what we're going to talk about in the uh, webinar. But essentially what happened is the doctor was was treating the right disease, if you will, ADHD, he was just treating the wrong part of the brain. So our treatment program that I talked about earlier focuses on treating the limbic system. And there are some medications we sometimes use that act on the limbic system. So that's why understanding the brain basis of these behaviors is so important. And the assessment that I talked about before across the three domains maps out that you don't need an MRI. That full assessment will map the brain out for you. So, in fact, you do know which part of the brain to treat. Makes sense?
1: Yeah. I mean, people are going to have to tune in to see your hand gestures at your your webinars. (laughs) (laughs) I just... Your level of expertise and knowledge is like it's beyond mind blowing, but um, I just your your level of compassion is really there, and I think that's what.
2: Uh, I. I, so imp-
1: I mean, I some, some people just family. don't. Yeah, some people just don't have that compassion side of things, and you, it really comes out when you speak. And
2: good, thanks. I'm I
1: appreciate that. I just have one last question and this could be very controversial for your profession, for your (laughs) colleagues and such. So you don't have to answer it if you don't want to, but just going to ask pizza or tacos.
2: Oh God. You're asking somebody who grew up in Texas. I'd have to go with tacos.
1: (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Good. (laughs) Well, Dr. Chesnoff, thank you so much.
2: Um, It's such an
1: important topic to discuss and to learn more about. And we're really looking forward to your webinar in April for our spring summit. And we're happy that you're going to be a presenter with us.
2: Thanks a lot. I know your organization does great work in Minnesota.
0: Yeah.
1: And Sonny, did you you have any last
0: messages? Nope, I'm going to go have some tacos
1: now. So. Tacos on the brain. So thanks again, Dr. Chaznoff. You're very
2: welcome. Thanks a lot.
1: If you are interested in participating in Dr. Chasnoff's live webinar, please go to our website at famadoptmn.org. Under the education tab, Adopt Ed Workshops, register for Behavior Belongs in the Brain, the Child with Prenatal Substance Exposure. Our spring summit is free to all. The date and time again of this webinar is April 19th from 9 a.m. to 1030 a.m. Central. Thank you so much for joining us today for Let's Talk please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to our podcast and tune in again soon.